0: quite some years ago when I was drawn into the practice. Can you hear me back there? Okay. I was drawn into the practice. I think it was the quality of silence that that drew me the most into the practice. I had three kind of unruly children, adorable and sweet, but unruly, and I was a single parent. And I once... um, went to this place where there was this uh, kind of spiritual fair, and there were many, many practices, spiritual uh, practices that were being presented in this uh, place, this university. And I was just kind of curious. I knew this was happening. It was nearby. So I took my children, and I went there, and I started looking around. And I entered this uh, big cavernous uh, gymnasium, and looking at the many signs and booths, I saw one sign that captivated me. As my children were pulling on me and wanting lunch and this and that, and the sign said "Silent Retreat," and <laughs> and so I-, I was drawn to that part of it uh, the most. And uh, so I started to do retreats, to actually participate and sit in retreats. And in the beginning, I didn't know why, really. There was some old, deep, kind of karmic connection that was being remade in one way. And, um, you know, there was a continuation of it in another way that I felt was going on. And so I would attend these retreats and... One day I remember at the uh, breakfast table, Sam or one of my children were asking me, Mom, why do you do this? And I had absolutely, I didn't know why. I, you know, I enjoyed the peacefulness, the quiet of it. It was quite a new thing in those days, about 25 years ago, when the Dharma was just coming to the West. And um, I sort of grew into understanding what, the importance, the preciousness, the benefit of mindfulness practice is all about. And there's that saying that I, I came upon one day when I was uh, teaching a retreat and I was wondering, what, what am I going to say? you know, what uh, How am I going to present this? And um, there was this piece of paper on the table that said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And so what is this road, this path of mindfulness that we're taking? What is it all about? Where is it leading us? And I want to talk about that specifically, mindfulness tonight, and weave together some understandings that perhaps can help you, give you confidence, more more understanding that will serve as a foundation for your practice along the way because this is our path of practice this is the the main tool that we use in this satipatthana vipassana practice we we hear it called as vipassana but really the the complete kind of description and name for it is satipatthana vipassana bhavana and it means sati means Mindfulness. And uh, patana, the pa in that satipatana means a sort of extraordinary kind of mindfulness. To to look at it from a deeper side than just at the surface. And um, vipassana actually means seeing things as they really are. And bhavana means a cultivation of that. So here we are with this kind of practice that we do, mindfulness, and it's this very precious cause and condition for many understandings to arise, many unveilings to take place, a lot of honesty uh, in seeing and experiencing what's happening. It allows this ability for us to experience the moment in the very, very purest kind of way, a very pure clarity about our moment's experience. This is one of the functions of mindfulness practice and what it actually helps us to do. It has immediate and far-reaching benefits, mindfulness practice does, in the moment when we're able to open to and experience deeply this ever-changing present moment, a lot of happiness can arise. That is the immediate benefit of it. And this happiness and the opening to the purity of that moment are causes and conditions for deep, liberating insights to arise, which bring us to an incredible, unconditional, rare experience of peace. And so it does have these far-reaching benefits also, but one has to be in this ever-changing present moment to realize not just the immediate, but these far-reaching benefits. So by now you've heard many times, if you've practiced before, and you'll hear many times as you begin this path of practice. I know there are many of you who are just beginning on this path, so I wanted to weave this uh, Dharma talk tonight in such a way that it has meaning for for everyone. So we've heard that mindfulness is the one tool that brings us to and that opens us to and helps us to relax into the present moment. Well, what's so important about that? What's so good about that? The one very... um, The one very excellent thing about that is that it's only it's only in the present moment that we can open to the deepest truth of life there's no other way that we can do that we can't do it by thinking about the past we can't do it by projecting into the future by hoping by fantasizing but only by fully being in this present moment A lot of times if we've practiced a lot, uh, or not even a lot, but when we've begun to practice and we're kind of chugging along on the road of mindfulness, we begin to get kind of lost in the methodology of it. Like, okay, when this happens, now I do this. And when I feel too closed down, then I open. When I'm too open, then I focus more. When I'm too intense about it, then I back off. When I'm too backed off then I try to come closer to the object and the methodology is what we get lost in. But mindfulness is much more than that. It's really about being awake with whatever's happening. Not just present but truly awake with the present moment. And not just on a big scale, you know, on a situational level But what this practice helps us to do is to learn how to be awake on more of a moment-to-moment basis, which is very, very different than understanding our lives from maybe a psychological point of view, which is very useful and important also. But that's not the modality that we're using here. It's this skill of being able to be present moment-to-moment which is not thinking about what's happening, not conceptualizing what's happening, but truly being so intimate, so close, experiencing so directly what's going on that it, the subjective experience is that it's before or beyond thought. So we begin through this moment-to-moment experience to know the terrain of our hearts and minds so deeply in a way that we can't know by reading about it or by someone else telling us about it, but by knowing it, by actually being present there and feeling, experiencing the textures of the heart, the mind, the different ways that we viscerally experience what's going on in our bodies in our hearts, in our minds. We learn how to relax into the moment in a way we've never felt before and relax in a way where we can see it unfold, see our lives, our minds, our hearts unfold in in an organic way that actually gives us the teachings that we need. We don't have to direct our Um, our path in any way, if we're really connected with what's happening inside, our own experiences direct our path, show us the way to go. And we learn when we relax into it that we stop struggling with what's going on and to receive it with a new kind of freshness. And no matter how long we've been practicing it's always fresh in a different way we We see that, and even if we've just begun to practice and we feel like, Gee, all these years have gone by, and I've just begun this kind of awareness understanding. well, it's never too late, it's never, never too late. There are so many stories in the the suttas or the sutras told by the the Buddha and his disciples that we read about, and also in today's time where we see that many people of all ages, it doesn't matter when we begin. It really just matters what kind of sincerity of heart that we can bring to it. A few years ago, about five years ago, I was um, an intern at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center their stress reduction program that's led by John Kabat-Zinn and uh, being an intern means that part of the day you you actually participate with the patients and, uh, and then at the end of the day that's the beginning of the day and then at the end of the day you review it with your what's going on what happened with your teacher um, and so during this time when I was an intern, and I remember during one of the very first classes I was in, there was this older man in his 70s, and um, this actually was his second mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which is an eight-week course. And his wife uh, was going through some very serious um, challenge, health challenge and so he he was the one attending this course because of the stress that he was undergoing and so um there was a at the end of the day of the patient's uh, uh few hours, there's a circle, and the patients uh, whoever wants will express something and he expressed with kind a kind of happiness that had tears in his eyes that. Just the simple understanding of how to be present had changed his life so much. Just his ability to be more present and see his his family, his wife, his children, his grandchildren, and see his dog with fresh eyes, just to experience them without ways of how he wants them to be or you know, having carrying some kind of resentment from the past, but just the ability to be in the moment's experience with it was a whole new way. It's like he said, I have different eyes to see with. it said that the perfect teacher is the present moment. The perfect teacher is the present moment. The present moment, when we're really in the present moment and we're really paying attention, it's a happy moment. It's an easeful moment. It may not be like we're ecstatically happy, but there's some kind of fulfillment that comes with really being present with whatever's going on. It's easy for us to shift into that gratitude for our ability to actually be there, do that open to it, relaxing with the flow of our lives. It feels sometimes like there's, there needs to be a, a feeling of floating in the moment, you know, and just letting the waves of the river of life carry us. When I was uh, putting together the notes for this talk i I was um, having a, a a kind of homesickness attack, not in the present moment <laughs> and I remembered uh, though with with a lot of happiness, I was remembering when one of my daughters took me out on a snorkeling uh, adventure in a little bay. Um, where we live, and um, she had gone out snorkeling, and she saw, while she was out there snorkeling, she saw this particular place, and she came in, and she said, Mom, you have to see this place. It's really, really beautiful. And so I went out there with her, and, you know, the waves change, of course, and you don't know exactly where the place is again. But we went out and she said, you know, she said, it's going to be around here somewhere. And so we put our heads down and just sort of floated around in the water and looked deep within the water. And then she pointed down and deep down in the water there was this place. It was not a big place, but it was just this very small area that had the bluest blue, 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 blue color coming from some living organism down there, maybe a piece of coral. I don't know exactly what it was. But it took that kind of relaxing yet focusing our gaze, you know, being kind of alert to what's going on. It took a feeling of floating and letting... You, you, you couldn't stop the, the, the current and the waves from bobbing you up and down, and swishing you back and forth a little bit. But it it took a gaze that was steady into one particular area and yet relaxed so that we could actually receive the beauty of that color, of that moment's experience. And that's a kind of balance that it takes to be in the present moment, a, a kind of... Feeling of relaxing around, relaxing into, floating, yet focusing your attention on what's going on. Not this daughter, but another daughter, the youngest daughter, would tell um, me and uh, Steve, my partner. Some of you know uh, my partner, Steve Armstrong. He's also a Dharma teacher. He has a quite a sharp... And focused mind. Um, His abilities of concentration are something I really admire. And when we go into a shopping center, he always says, now, Kamala, I want to know exactly where you're going and what you're going to do and what you want. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Nothing else, you know. (laughs) And he has that kind of focus, you know, otherwise I can really get out there. And so one time around Christmas, um, my daughter, my third daughter, Therese, whom uh, Steve helped to raise, dropped us off, and she looked at Steve, and she said, now, Dad, float. (laughs) And she looked at me, and she said, now, Mom, focus. (laughs) And... And it takes that kind of of balance to, to really have that presence of mind to be in the present moment, to be with what's happening. That relaxation that makes you feel like you're just buoyant and floating with the waves and the currents that are happening, and yet that focus on what's really being experienced in this present moment, right here, right now. But the present moment is not a place we abide in very much. It's we, we painfully see that. It's one of the first insights that we have, really, when we're a new meditator and uh, when we're uh, sort of a, an experienced meditator. It's an old pain that we re-experience, maybe in a different way, but nevertheless it's there. We see that we get lost. We're not present. We get lost in thoughts of the past. Reviewing, reviewing, reviewing. Reviewing is a mental note, a silent mental note that I often use. Reviewing, reviewing. It keeps me out of the storyline of what's going on. And just seeing the process, the the river, the flow. Reviewing, reviewing. I'm a person that gets lost in the past all the time. And other people get lost in the future, fantasizing. But in both ways, we do that. Sometimes I see for myself that it's because the present moment can be so painful to be in sometimes. And so our habit pattern is to go to the past, to fantasize, futurize, plan into the future, But there is something that we can do about it. It's not hopeless. We can begin again. We cannot be lost. We don't have to be lost. And this is something that's kind of a, a phrase that uh, we hear a lot, especially from Sharon. She's kind of like the, um, the person that reminds us of this all the time, the begin again, begin again. It's so very important. It's also important to realize in this beginning again that oftentimes when we come and we, bid, we begin again, even at that very beginning, our mind still kind of slips back into, oh, but I was lost for all this time. And we go into condemning, criticizing, comparing. It's interesting to watch how our minds go there out of habit. In, in the very beginning, when I got the instructions from Manindra, my very first Dharma teacher, he would say, um, I'm, all, I'm paraphrasing him, but it's almost to the word. He would say, if your mind wanders or gets lost in thought, the moment that you realize that you've been lost in thought, notice that, lost in thought. Begin again without comparing, without condemning, without criticizing, without judging. Just begin again. But what we do is we, we do that. We compare, we condemn, and our energy, even when we begin again, goes right back there. And we get lost again in that world. And we don't, we've, we fail to recognize that this moment. When we're present, this moment of awakening is a most precious moment. The moment that we actually realize lost in thought, wandering mind, thinking, anger, whatever it is, that moment that we actually realize that is a moment of awakening. And a lot of our practice is retraining ourselves to abide in that understanding that this is a moment of awakening. This is the moment to really settle in, this moment of awakening, and not get pulled back in that old current of condemning, criticizing, judging oneself. You know, we often, I often hear <coughs> reported to me, and even in my own uh, practice, I'll do that. You know, they'll, I'll be... Uh, there'll be many, many times when there's an awakening to the present moment but most of my energy then reverts back and rivets around oh, but I was lost for so long. Letting go of that and just really abiding in that moment of awakening that's a moment to rejoice about. While well, we do get lost, it's because our minds are running here and there out of habit and we have to retrain. The the practice of mindfulness is a practice of deconditioning those old habit patterns. It's a practice of reconditioning patterns that lead to liberating insight, to peace, to happiness. It's a way that we learn how to be more still in the present moment, not running here and there. <clears throat> this is a, a poem by David Wagoner, a Native American Indian. And the name of the poem is Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called Here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to Raven. No two branches are the same to Wren. If what what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. If you leave it, it may come back again. Saying here. When we really look at the practice of mindfulness deeply, we see that it's not an ordinary kind of awareness that we're cultivating here. It's quite extraordinary, really. In our daily lives, we utilize a kind of mindfulness or awareness, attention, in order to transact the business of our lives, making sure that Our children are fed and get off to school and get through college and go through their emotional ups and downs, and we get through the emotional ups and downs and pay our bills and balance our checkbook and the mortgage and all of that. And without it, we can't function without this kind of utilitarian awareness, mindfulness. But the kind of mindfulness that the Buddha taught that enables us to open to the, the deepest liberating insights is not this kind of utilitarian mindfulness. It's a kind of awareness that goes so deep. It's not this kind of intelligence that cannot reach deep enough, the ordinary kind of intelligence we have. It goes so deep that it changes our capacity to experience life. It kind of widens and deepens our capacity to experience life, ourselves, others, in an entirely different way, to see it with new eyes. And not mere, not just the eyes that I talked about, this of this older man, which is profound in itself, of being able to Just be accepting and happy with the moment just as it is. But even deeper than that, we see into the nature of life very deeply. Because mindfulness has this extraordinary function to reflect what is arising, what is changing, and what is dissolving in the here and now in the precise here and now, which awakens us to those profound truths which change our lives in an extraordinary way, the truths of seeing the incredible, ever-changing, dissolving nature of this moment, which then when we see so deeply, we begin to realize in an ever-deepening way that because of that, we really can't hold on to anything. And it's that holding on that has caused so much suffering. So those kinds of understandings come to us when we practice. But what we first discover, even with a little mindfulness, is what we discover to be this kind of unruly monkey mind that, lies beneath the shallow surface of the distractibility that we've had, we have in life, the busyness. We we have to keep things together, of course, in our lives. And so we're so busy doing things and it's so hard to really see deeply from that place of busyness. Um, but in a place like this, when we don't have to do that anymore. It's kind of, we don't have to distract ourselves, even though we do, and we see into the present moment much more clearly. It's quite a frightening experience in the beginning to see how busy our minds are. It just doesn't stay still. It's said that mindfulness has this... uh, Characteristic of non superficiality. So it doesn't stay on the surface. It kind of sinks down into the depths, and that's what it sees. And a lot of people, when they first start practice, they say, I'm doing this all wrong, because I'm just, my mind is so busy and it's crazy, and I just can't do this. But that's really one of the first insights that we have because mindfulness is working it 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 sinks into it doesn't just float on the surface of the pond of our minds it sinks deep into the pond and we begin to see things that maybe we haven't seen so clearly before and there are many times when maybe we want to stop and we can't take it anymore but we just have to keep going. Maybe give ourselves a little break and begin again. Begin again. And I remember um, years ago when I began practicing with Upandita, one of my other Dharma teachers, I don't know actually if this advice came from him or from the translator, but it was good advice and uh it always gave me a way of backing off and beginning again. One time I came into him and I was just, I felt completely unraveled and uh, sort of broken up. And I just felt like I couldn't go on anymore. And so I i was explaining this to him. And maybe he just didn't know what to say or what to... I remember the translator got up and was going back and forth and saying, oh, there's so much suffering in the world, there's so much suffering in the world. And then Upandita said, "Um, just stop and pull up your socks and begin again. And so I do that a lot when I'm walking. You know, when I'm walking, I get plagued by a lot of old memories. This is when the old memories come for me in walking practice. And so every once in a while I just stop and I bend down and I pull up my socks and I get up and I take a breath and I just take another step and begin again. And somehow that stopping, mindfully bending down, pulling up my socks, taking another step, it's a little way that I can just stop for a minute, back off and begin again when it gets too hard. But somehow, even when it's so painful, whatever we're experiencing is so painful, there is something that's profoundly fulfilling about the ability to be with it. And I think this, it's this one side of it that we don't often really ponder and reflect on that's what brings us back to the practice over and over again. Because when I look back, or when a lot of people look back, not just myself, they say, I wonder why I'm doing this retreat. The last one was so bad, you know. And here I am again, doing it all over again. And But what we don't reflect on so much is that, yes, it was difficult, was so challenging, it is so challenging. And it's our ability to open to it that courage to be with it that's so profoundly fulfilling, that courage to say and to face, to kind of lead into the moment with our hearts and kind of sit up a little taller and say, yes, I can be with this moment. And even though it's hard and we may be screaming inside silently or crying or whatever we feel, and it's hard, there's that place that is able to be with that incredible challenge. It takes an incredible courage to be with an incredible challenge. And we don't often reflect on that, of course, because the, the courage and that, that place is so ephemeral. But the dukkha, the suffering, is so grisly. You know, and that's what we remember. But really, the fulfilling part about it is that ability, the capacity to do that. And that's what brings us back over and over again. When mindfulness is at its best, um, there's no pushing away, there's no holding on. And there's no confusion about what's going on. Because it's said that when mindfulness is there, attachment cannot be there, the holding on to what we like. When mindfulness is there, aversion cannot be there, this pushing away what we don't like. When mindfulness is there, confusion. Ignorance, delusion cannot be there. That moment is clearly seen, experienced. And when that happens, there's this kind of rare happiness that goes on. It's momentary. It's sort of like in just a flicker of a moment, but it's there. And that happiness is not dependent on the previous moment being pleasurable, because we, if we're really sensitive we experience that kind of fulfillment. Not an exuberant kind of happiness but a kind of peaceful happiness when anything is open to with mindfulness whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's that kind of rare happiness that's not conditioned. There's a a passage in part of the teachings of the Buddha called the Sutta Nipata that goes like this. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not at what remains in the middle. Wow. That's... Where is that? that's what we're discovering here that's what mindfulness is onwardly leading us to let there be nothing behind you leave the future to one side and grasp not what, what remains in the middle so where does that leave us you know, in this open, incredible moment of experiencing the ever-changing transience of life, it's like this place of allowing ourselves to fall into the mystery of it and not needing to control anything in any way. It's a kind of grace when we open to that, a kind of amazing Grace. And no matter what's happening, there's this peaceful feeling that can come. This peaceful feeling that we're able to be in this changing and vulnerable world, no matter what's happening, inside or outside. And as we're here more and more often, as we're here, we're really, really here, which is always changing it begins to align us with a truth so deep that it changes our way of looking at things. And we begin to rest more with life. But if our minds were able to settle in a very natural way by someone just coming up in front of us and saying, now the instruction for today is pre- please rest in the natural luminosity of the mind i mean uh, i wish you know that could be so but it's not it's a it's a major challenge to do it so our ordinary minds and even when they're when we've practiced a lot it needs this continual training and retraining it needs a skillful means this method to evoke this kind of momentum to be with the present moment, this extraordinary kind of awareness that will evoke this kind of awakening. So here, in no matter where we are in the practice, beginner or um, very practiced in it, we offer the same instructions because they're useful all the time. And sometimes we hear different parts of it that we've never heard before. And so the instructions are given to us in such a way that help us to steady the mind, to steady and to, not just to steady the mind, but to gather all the, the, uh, the energy of the mind into one place, into this present moment. And where do we use to gather that? Um, In the beginning, as the instructions were given today, we use the breath. We use the breath as what we call the primary anchor. Um, Most people use the breath as a primary anchor, although some others have uh, maybe sitting, feeling oneself sitting on the cushion or hearing as an anchor. But I'll just use breath to, to make it simple. Um, we use the breath because, of course, it's already there. We don't have to contrive any kind of concept. It's, it's a direct experience that can be experienced without layering anything on top of it. And it's constantly present and yet ever-changing. And so we use breath as a primary anchor to bring our attention to and to steady our attention there. And not only to steady our attention, but the other part of it is that we use it to sharpen the attention, to sharpen the attention, to make it clearer. Just this one breath. And when we kind of bring it to the one breath and focus, steady, stay with it, rest around it, it makes the moment's experience clearer. And then we use that steadiness and sharpness of mind, that clarity of mind, and we bring it then to other objects that appear in the field of attention. So what are the other objects that then we open to? It's not just the breath. The purpose of this practice is not to just be with the breath. And it's not just to sharpen the attention. The purpose of this practice is to be with anything and everything that we can possibly experience as a human being. So it eventually, the practice opens us to a lot more, to everything, to other areas or foundations of mindfulness. And just in a nutshell, we may explain more about the foundations of mindfulness later, but just in a nutshell, they are Everything that we can experience in a most direct way, not thinking about it, but in a very direct, visceral way, experiential way, with the body, all the various sensations of the body as they arise in in a very elemental way. We may experience feelings, not not, uh, emotions, not those kinds of feelings, but the feelings of Pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality. We may experience various states of mind, which were, is where the emotional aspect comes in anger, sadness, grief, pity, happiness. So we all begin to open to everything in a very clear, yet steady way. This is how we're being trained. Many years ago when, um, after I began to practice and I began to practice in a kind of maybe blind faith way, not really knowing what I was getting into I think, but the the, uh, understanding deepened or reconnected with other deeper experiences maybe that I didn't remember, but I realized at some point along the way early on that I wanted a deeper understanding of life. I wanted to understand something more than what came from, from the teacher or from uh, a book. And my understanding for a long time was that profound experiences only happened to, like, saints or other people or uh, maybe at a different place, like in heaven, uh, or at a future time, but not to me, or, uh, you know, it's, it was sort of like I could only hope for that. And I realized in a painful way that I had lost so much faith I didn't have faith in myself and that my faith was always somewhere out there. And I came upon a poem or really a Zen proverb that helped me to turn my attention in a different way to kind of um, point myself in another direction. And the Zen proverb goes, um, Gazing at the moon, you lose the pearl, in your own hands. Gazing at the moon, you lose the pearl in your own hands. And so, it was like looking out there at, you know, all these saints that I did novenas uh, for. And uh, so I met Manindra, my first Dharma teacher. And I... I asked him something, in the only way that I knew how to ask at that time was I asked him, how can I really experience God? That was the only way that I knew how to express that. I really would like to experience God. How could I know how to do that? And he had studied the Bible a little bit, in particular the, this passage of the Beatitudes. And he said blessed are the pure in heart he reminded me of that beatitude blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God and asked me is my heart pure and in truth I I could only say well oh, no you No, know, there's so many ways that I experience um, sad to say a lot of places of aversion a lot of ways that I get attached, that cause suffering. He explained further to me that the word God did not exist in the Buddhist teaching, but that the experience did, does. So that meant a lot to me. It was kind of a bridge for me, that the experience of this kind of purity of heart could be there. And it wasn't out there. It could be experienced here in my own heart in this very moment. And so I began to turn that faith in a different direction and from a different direction, from more of an inside out rather than an outside in. And when I asked Manindra, where do I begin? He said, The only place you can begin is the present moment. And it's the only place that's worth being that will show you the way. In this very body and mind, not anywhere else. Not in a book, not in any scripture, not in any beautiful words that anybody else says. And um, he used to say, your only job is to be mindful. And that's the way you'll discover that. A lot of us have heard this term, uh, this phrase that's in Las Vegas a lot. Uh, You must be present to win. There's such a directness about that. There's such a simplicity and practicality about that. It's hard to receive that It can be so, but it is so. When mindfulness is present, Manindra used to say, all the other beautiful qualities of mind and heart are nearby. Because mindfulness is is like a light. And when there is light there, there is no darkness. So when the light is a little bit bright, you know, there's, there may be shadows around, but when it gets really, really bright, everything is illuminated. And Manindra used to say, and Upandita also, when mindfulness is truly there, it's like a mini-enlightenment, because when mindfulness is present, greed, hatred, and delusion cannot be present in that moment It's like a mini-awakening. And so it's a mini-awakening. We're awakened to the moment, even though we're awakened to the moment of sadness, but we're awakened in that moment. And what do we do sometimes is we fall back into being asleep or fall back into the suffering of being lost. So being awake and staying awake takes a lot of Beginning again. It's said that actually being present, being mindful, is easy. But the persistence in continually being mindful, in remembering to being mindful again, that's what's challenging. Once we're there, mindfulness is easy. But to begin again, to be mindful again, the next moment and the next moment and the next moment that momentum takes some effort in the beginning. So what happens in that light when we're able to see what's going on in the present moment with much more clarity, much more honesty? It allows us to, re- to see what's going on honestly and then to respond to our lives, to the situation in life with much more clarity so that we know without a doubt that what we're doing, or at least we have the intention not to harm, not to be harmed, how to protect. We know how to protect ourselves, how to protect others. One description of mindfulness is that it's a protective practice, a protective practice because it protects us from the harm that we do our others and the harm that we do ourselves. This is from Sogyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. The practice of mindfulness unveils and, un- and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become truly useful to others. Through the practice, by slowly removing the unkindness and harm from yourself, you allow your true good heart, the fundamental goodness and kindness that you are, your real nature, to shine and become the warm climate in which your true being flowers. That, that is why I call meditation the true practice of non-aggression, non-violence, and the real and greatest disarmament. There's um, so many aspects about mindfulness. I think the last point that I'd really like to make in I, I um, like to give metaphors, uh, pictures, and stories because I think that's what remains with us. It helps us to to remember in a visceral way. Um, this one point about mindfulness being like a lens of attention. You'll hear sometimes us interchange. The word attention or awareness actually with mindfulness. Mindfulness, it is said, is likened to a very clean and perfect mirror that simply reflects. It doesn't hold on. That mirror doesn't have a hand in it that comes out and grabs what's being reflected because it's pleasant and it wants it to stay. Nor does some kind of hand go out and push it away if it doesn't like what's going on. But it simply reflects what's going on in the pre- pre- present moment without distorting, without camouflaging, without holding, without pushing away. It said that by clearly recognizing and actually naming. In some cases, we will uh, begin to reinforce or reiterate the, this naming or noting technique that really helps to um, be really clear about what's going on in the present moment. And by doing that, these two harmful devices, it is said, of ignoring and camouflaging are disengaged, they're disarmed. So we can no longer ignore the present moment nor camouflage over it. I found it really interesting that um, when I looked in the texts, read more about mindfulness in the ancient texts, it said that the proximate cause for mindfulness to arise is strong perception. Is strong perception. And I wanted to make a point of that because. The noting process clarifies perception. And that's why in in our particular tradition, Upandita really emphasizes noting because it, it really clarifies perception. And strong perception is a proximate cause for mindfulness to arise. So, there are many, many benefits, of course, immediate, far reaching, to mindfulness. And just in, in kind of review and to sum up, I'd like to um, lay it out as uh, one great Tibetan teacher uh, laid out. This is from our sister tradition, uh, Tibetan tradition, from Dilgo Kinshi Rinpoche. And he says that you can think of the nature of mindfulness like a mirror with five different powers or wisdoms. And one of them is that it has this capacity to reflect in precise detail whatever comes before it. And so this is why it's called the mirror-like wisdom. It also has this um, fundamental lack of any bias whatsoever towards any impression, any reflection. So that is why it's called this equalizing wisdom. It also has this ability to distinguish clearly, without confusing in any way, the various phenomena. So this is why it uh, says it has the wisdom of discernment. The fourth one, it is said this mindfulness, the openness and vastness of it has this wisdom of all-encompassing space, which is the womb of compassion. And the last one is that it has this potential, its potential of having everything already accomplished, perfected, and spontaneously present is the all-accomplishing wisdom. And so these are the qualities, the benefits, the functions, the characteristics, the ways that we can know to keep mindfulness in balance, to understand its beauty, its preciousness, and why we're on this path. So let's sit for a moment.